Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. So today, this show is going to be a little bit different. I have a recording where I moderated a panel at the MIT Energy Conference. The MIT Energy Conference is, this, this was my first year attending, but it is a fully student organized, student-supported, student-led energy conference that brings industry experts from across the energy ecosystem and brings them in to talk about new innovations that are occurring in the energy space, as well as what are some of the challenges that we see in energy at that time. So this was a panel that I moderated back in April of 2023. And the panel focus was the role of geothermal and nuclear in this clean energy future that we're looking to. So all of you that that have been listening for a while or are in the energy space, recognize that geothermal and nuclear are two of the the clean base load power sources that being very low carbon production from these and this is life cycle and lifetime production of carbon so it was a natural fit to have these two on a panel talking about how base load and how these clean energy sources can be that that foundational energy for the future of a of a clean energy grid so I was, I was happy to moderate this panel. I had a lot of fun, and I am excited to, to bring you this show today. It, I, I want to thank all the panel members who did give approval to have this out there. We do have some, I mean, we're talking about nuclear and geothermal. It's a, these are not topics that necessarily are always talked about and, and allowed to be talked about publicly. So glad that I'm bringing the show to you today. And also, I, I definitely need to give a special shout out to Adria and Jerome for putting together this panel. I was asked by Jerome to moderate. I had very little role in actually putting the panel together. So they've got some, some great people on this and they will do introductions as soon as I stop talking here in this recording. And instead of making any type of edits, I just left it as is. You can see me. I do actually get stage fright when I'm in front of a lot of people. So you will see me fumble through my words at the beginning. 
and and then hear this great conversation that we all have. So with that, I'm going to stop talking and let's get to that conversation. And one more thing, sorry, there won't be an outro today. So please remember, like, subscribe, share with a friend, send a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. And, and if you have any questions, remember that we do have that email, ETS at OGGN.com. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. All right. Thanks, y'all. Now to that, that panel. All right. So thank you, everybody, for joining us and being in this panel. I will try to keep us on time, although I don't know how much time we actually get. So we'll see how that goes. Um, the role of geothermal and nuclear in the clean energy transition. So. Since you're in here, I'm sure that you have heard of geothermal or nuclear. You may be aware of some of the problems and some of the benefits, but as we look at current events and look at the need for energy security, energy resilience, and simply put, more clean, reliable energy, we need to come back to geothermal and nuclear and toot our horns a little bit and remind you how great we are. So with that, I'm going to let the panel start talking and I'm going to revert to just questions. Let's first start with introductions. I know Jerome and, and his fellow co-host gave us good, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Adria. Adria. Good job, Jim. Yeah, so um, is there anything more that you would all like to say as an introduction? No. Uh, I got nothing. Okay. <laughs> well, let's just get this going. With that, we're going to get started. So, in order to move forward, we need to have a baseline. So, we're going to start with a very simple question What is the state of these respective industries? Taylor, we're going to start with you. I want you to give us a perspective on the geothermal industry. First, starting with what is the market share of geothermal power for the U.S.? How has that changed in the past 10 to 20 years? And, and real quick, sorry, this is going to be very U.S. focused, so sorry about that. Uh, okay, so in the U.S., it's small. It's like just under half a percentage of the total installed capacity for, for geothermal. Uh, historically, in the 80s, there was a really large boom in the development of geothermal. And that was due to uh, some federal policies that de-risked the, um, the exploration of it and these really expensive uh, upfront costs that are associated with geothermal. Uh, and, and you see this boom go through the 80s and sorts to, it tapers off in the 90s when the program ends. Since then, it's relatively plateaued up until recently where there's this uh, coalescence of the right policies, technologies, um, you know, market demand and market reward for geothermal, that's starting to pick up steam, pun intended, and uh, generate you know, interest in, in widespread geothermal development. So what we're going into right now is what's called uh, the, the golden decade or the geothermal decade that, that um, some people have called it. Um, and it's really you know, a, a, a name for the next 10 years that are supposed to be uh, this just boom in, in geothermal development in the U.S. and on a global basis. Um, the main thing that's different between 
you know, what happened in the 80s and, and what's happened now is the interest that the oil and gas industry has been expressing and investing into the geothermal domain. Um, it's a natural you know, connection between the subsurface that oil and gas is used to working in and the capital financing and the technology that's deployed between oil and gas and, and geothermal. And so there's a lot of companies, you know, Baker Hughes included, that are making uh, significant investments both into uh, the development, um, operators, and technology that's designed to de-risk geothermal development, it's designed to lower the cost of the development, and in general, grow the share of geothermal from you know, half of 1% into something that's much, much larger. Um, and uh, you know, the, the goals are there for the industry to, to get to that point too. Now, Jamie Beard, I would like to talk more as you are leading this nonprofit producing fundamental research, how have you seen the difference from kind of that side of what is coming into the geothermal industry and how can we actually grow the industry? All right, so maybe we should back up for just a second because I'm not, I'm, I think we're assuming that people in the room know what geothermal is, right? And, and for most of the world, if you think about geothermal, the, the images that come, come to mind are likely um, sitting in a hot spring somewhere or Iceland or some of these, these really typical areas. Um, and that's where most of the geothermal in the world that's currently developed exists. It's where it's near the surface, right? So just like Taylor was mentioning, What's really exciting is that we're able to now, and increasingly because of the, the oil and gas industry and, and technology development, look at geothermal not just where it's close to the surface, but the prospect of developing it anywhere, anywhere in the world. Um, geothermal resources exist anywhere and everywhere. They're right here underneath us in this, in this conference center. It's just a matter of how far down you drill. And who's really good at that? Well, the oil and gas industry is really good at that, right? So. Um, the shale boom brought us a whole lot of really cool breakthrough technological developments that are being transferred actively into geothermal right now, right? So from a research and development perspective, this is really, really cool. It is a, it is a renaissance period for geothermal because now we're looking at this paradigm of developing geothermal everywhere, and we're doing that with, you know, with, with research and development that was largely... Um, largely done by the oil and gas industry uh, for the shale boom in the last 20 years. So, so for interspace, what we're focused on is the, is the really hard stuff, um, the research and development that nobody really wants to fund because it kind of would benefit everybody um, and nobody's really um, uniquely suited to develop it themselves. So things like high temperature sensors, um, you know, some, some technology transfer from, from NASA and defense into geothermal, so building some collaborations there. Um, and we're also developing community assets like high-resolution maps of the subsurface. So again, assets that all stakeholders could use, but no one is uniquely suited to developing themselves. So in this, and Interspace is a nonprofit that uses philanthropic capital to do this. So really exciting, really exciting time. The cool thing about um, geothermal is, it's got a bunch of oil and gas interest and in technology transfer, but from inter interspaces uh, perspective, we're funded by climate philanthropy. So, you know, on one side, you have oil and gas bringing a lot to the table. On the other side, you have environmentalists and climate philanthropists saying, well, we want to play in this too, and that's really cool, because you've got polarized entities all liking the same thing. Yep. Very exciting, and so it's, it's cool to see that Geothermal was kind of stagnant for a while, but 
it is poised for exponential growth in this geothermal decade. And it's a combination of both philanthropy and also industry coming in. Now I wanna to switch to nuclear. So Jamie Coleman, as the, as the representative here who is actually working on developing a active commercial nuclear power plant, how much energy, I guess, how much of the energy mix is nuclear currently? And have you seen that or how has that changed in the past 10 to 20 years? Yes, yeah, so currently there are 92 reactors in 28 states that supply about 20% of the nation's total energy. Um, that's not including the two units that we're currently building um, in Georgia where I work currently. Um, about 50% though of the clean energy, so carbon-free energy is from nuclear. Um, we are seeing some changes. Um, there, there have been seven nuclear plants decommissioned in the last 10 years. Um, one example of a, of a plant that didn't get decommissioned was in Diablo Canyon. The plant, there's a plant in California that was set for decommissioning. Um, and that one, they changed their minds and they're gonna keep that one running and they're actually looking at renewing the license to, to run even longer um, because we're gonna hit on it, this whole panel, but it's, it's clean and it's baseload energy. So, you know, the, it's important, I think, for everybody to, to realize that the role that nuclear plays in that baseload capacity, because not everybody can play that in that, in that field, in that role. We have to have it, 20% um, is a lot, but if we're going to go to a carbon-free and, and a clean energy, we've got to increase that number even more. The, um, the plants at Bogle, we synced the first one to the grid April 1st, and we're still in the startup testing phase of that plant. So we've, we've taken it back off and we're, we're doing testing at all different power levels and things like that. So that's currently where we are. Um, plan to get to commercial operations soon on that plant. And then our next unit is right behind it. And that's, those plants each are 1200 megawatt plants. So a lot more capacity to be added to the grid. So it's exciting. So we've seen plants being decommissioned, but also plants being built. Um, so it's an exciting time, lots, lots going on. Thank you for, for explaining that. I, I think there's a few things I wanna point out there that, that are almost a, maybe a concern. The fact that we've had seven decommissioned nuclear plants recently. So we're, we're getting power put on the grid, but we've also lost mm -hmm. seven plants that, that could be a significant amount. So Emma, there is growth happening in nuclear and there is a lot of buzz about nuclear and how nuclear could start instead of being two plants in 30 years, how it could be more than that. So where is new growth happening in nuclear energy? That's a really good question. Um, I would like to say before I get into that, that the current operating fleet and actually extending the lives of the current operating fleet is what's going to get us and bridge us to the advent and putting online and deployment of small modular reactors, getting to geothermal, getting to other maybe even bigger nuclear power plants being built. So in my mind, we have to make sure that we keep an eye on what we already existingly have on the grid and make sure it doesn't go down, doesn't keep getting decommissioned. 
Um, I'm currently working at the OECD in Paris, France. I'm looking at it globally now, and I'm like, I just saw a news article that Germany is going to shut down their nuclear plants on Saturday. And so I'm really feeling for those people. I'm like, what are the, where is their electricity going to come from? You know, what is that carbon footprint now going to look like? And they've kind of, um, kind of said they're not going to change their mind on this, which I find very sad to think about. If you were to look at the science of these different technologies, why would you be shutting these down? You really need to inform everyone. Um, but looking to the future around the world globally, uh, one area we're looking at are small modular reactors now. You're saying, well, we have these great big nuclear reactors online. They can power everything. But not every geological footprint can handle a large-scale nuclear reactor. There are some ones that can only handle a footprint for a small nuclear reactor. And so these technologies that can get smaller, even to even micro-reactors, that may be um, what the answer may be for some communities, some areas, uh, some remote areas may need to have uh, just a very tiny um, power source. Maybe there's permafrost, we can't drill there yet, we haven't figured that out. Uh, but looking at different technologies may actually bring us to that net zero or even zero carbon future that we're looking for for electricity. Uh, we have been looking at the Nuclear Energy Agency, uh, looking at the 80-plus different small modular reactor designs that are out there. I was very skeptical when I started looking at this. I was like, there's 80-plus designs. How many of these are real? Or how many of them are just paper reactors? We have seen a lot of designs for different technologies out there, and a lot of them are just paper. I have been pleasantly surprised. Uh, we had a publication that came out on uh, March 13th looking at our first 21 reactors that we've an analyzed, and they're very far along. And what I've seen globally is, if you're looking at China and Russia, they're already building them. So there's not a technological barrier. There are different enabling conditions, including politics, uh, regulation, supply chain, financing, engagement of our communities, and where's all our fuel going to come from for nuclear power plants? Those are really some of the areas that we need to look at if we're going to look at future deployment. Well, I say let's start digging into those. So to, to preface this, baseload power, that's what we have up here, and lots of opportunity both in the technology space and deploying that technology into a, a zero carbon future. But something that you said, Emma, really caught me. You said some areas are not geologically suited for large modular reactors or large reactors. So I guess, one, I wanna, I wanna touch on that first and then also to Jamie Coleman and Emma, what are some of the other major, I guess, challenges right now that you want to elaborate on, that, that you want to highlight? So first, geologic risk, what are you talking about? So when you're looking at Europe specifically, like, okay, so in the United States, we have great big pieces of land with not a lot there, they're flat. Um, we do have to do siting studies for every uh, nuclear power plant you want to put on a site. And so it, it goes through a lot of analysis, and I think someone told me there's like 150 different parameters you have to check off in order you can say, I'm gonna put a nuclear power plant here. And that's a big area that you have to look at, including 
you know, seismic conditions, you know, what does the water table look like, you know, is there flooding risk? There's a lot of work and we have a lot of smart people working on this to say, yes, it will be safe on this piece of land from what we know today and the uh, predictions we can make today. There is climate change, right? So that is making it a little bit more difficult. But when you look at some other geographical areas, say in Europe, there's, there may be a little bit more mountainous. So they may not be able to take a big footprint of a power plant. They need something smaller to be able to fit in the, the square footage that they have, or square meters, I would say, for Europe. Um, and so a lot of times you also have a lot of existing towns, infrastructure already built in Europe that you can't put something with a large footprint there. So it already needs to have a smaller footprint for where it can like attach the grid, um, or there's a lot of farming areas. So there's a lot of different conditions that will dictate what size of a facility that you can actually build on a, on a site. And that almost, almost de facto limits the ability to use these larger, larger reactors, which then inhibited traditional growth patterns, which may have led to, among other factors, something like the U.S. not having power plants built for the past 30 years. What other, what other factors has limited growth? Jamie Coleman. Well, you know, one, I mean, one of the major thing that stopped the growth 30 plus years ago, right, was Three Mile Island. Hmm. And so, um, you know, there's advocacy that has to be done around, you know, what's real, what's factual, um, what the nuclear industry does when we when we hear about these things or we know about these things to prevent recurrence, those types of things. Um, but you know, for where we're sitting now, I think the biggest challenges, if, if you're following it at all, the Vogel project is over budget. It's over time. There's a lot of factors that contribute to that. Um, I can't say that this is the, you know, the one thing that caused us to be over budget, and there's a lot of things, but I think the biggest thing is the fact that we haven't done this in a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. um, we put these two units on a plant site that already had to, and you still have to go back and look at all the things that Emma talked about. Um, you know, there's a lot of regulation and there's a lot of um, just requirements and, and various things, but but what I, what I say for the positive is, um, you know, we're building two units. I, I wish there were 20 more AP1000s ready to go in different stages. But we have seen so many improvements just in this second unit that from what we've learned on unit three, we have so many talented people that have learned so much and so many lessons learned and we're capturing those because whether somebody builds an AP1000 or one of these many other technologies, there's things that people can learn. And if we get the ball rolling and we have the, the knowledge and, and the, you know, the steam behind it, did it again, then uh, <laughs> it, it, it gets easier and easier. We, I mean, we're seeing huge increases just on a very small scale, a test that took six months on unit three to complete um, you know, we're getting it done in 20 days. I mean, just, just from that small amount of lessons learned. So if you could continue that momentum, 
um, you know, you could really, I think, overcome a lot of these challenges of, and the, you know, that would impact you financially and how long it's taking. Mm-hmm. Yep. And what I was hearing you say was economy of scale and basically doing it and doing it more and more and more. Sure. Very similar to geothermal, where right now it could take it could take 60 days or 120 days to drill a well, but then by the fifth well, you've gotten much better. So switching over to geothermal, there are these technological challenges. What are, what are those main challenges in the geothermal industry in the, same line, in the same line, talking about things that we are improving on and we are getting better at? Okay, so I would say that, yeah, there's a lot of similarities between nuclear and geothermal with regards to the challenges and the opportunities. Nuclear, I mean, it's, it's gonna be like an order of magnitude larger than geothermal, both in terms of capex, uh, technology requirements, but then also output, right? But they're similar, they're both base load energy sources, primary energy sources that, that we need for grid stability, for grid reliability. Um, the, the challenges for geothermal roll into a couple different categories, Th three of them you know, being the technology, um, the societal awareness and education of it, and then the financing part. Uh, you know, there's some other, other ones like policy too that, that might be worth covering, but they, they each have uh, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's gonna be hard work getting there, right? Uh, you know, oil and gas, for instance, has, has a bit of a negative stigma to a decent percentage of the population. Um, but what needs to happen is a, is a, I guess, transformation of the thought process behind what the industry could bring into to solve a lot of these problems um, in terms of like, hey, we're bringing clean energy to, to you, to the consumers. You know, you turn on your water and it's hot because of something that was provided by the oil and gas industry. Geothermal has, has also a bit of a double-edged sword where like, you know, opposed to nuclear, you can, you can look at a nuclear plant and maybe understand like that's a nuclear power plant, right? Geothermal is, is not that way. You know, it's, it's, it's relatively benign. Um, the footprint can be really small, it's, um, it's something that if most people looked at it, they wouldn't really know what they're looking at. It's like a whole bunch of shiny pipes and tubes going into one location. That's, that's really it. So it's, it's this double-edged sword where you have this small benign footprint that on the opposite end just leads to like a general either non-education or miseducation behind what it is. People see wind, people see solar, you know, you can see solar panels and wind turbines everywhere and you you recognize that, right? You, you see where it is, what it's doing, you, you, you create that demand for providers to bring it to you because of you know, the nature of what it's doing. If you don't know geothermal, if you don't recognize it, you know, how can you create a demand for it? How can you advocate to your politicians that you want this and, and then how does that boil into the, the policies that are needed to support the growth and development of it? And it's hard, you know, it's, it's difficult to do sometimes. So one thing, <laughs> Jamie, do you have anything to add? All right, so he asked about what technologies. <laughs> so, okay, then the te technologies, I'm gonna right? let the oil and gas guy take this question and then I'll fill in the <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so, so it's, it's cost, right? It's cost and risk. Um, we could say roughly like drilling a geothermal well can be between five and $10 million per well, depending on where you're at, depending on you know, a number of different factors. Um, there's, there's a significant amount of risk in that first well that you drill. 
because you never truly know what you're going to encounter until you're touching that reservoir. So a massive amount of investment from uh, like startups within geothermal, within oil and gas, uh, within government funding that's coming down, has gone into the technology that's required to de-risk this exploration and de-risk the general drilling of geothermal projects. Because uh, and, and like the drilling alone could take up nearly 50% of a project's capex. So that's the common denominator across you know, oil and gas and geothermal and the, the different types of geothermal, is how can I create a more cost-effective well? And then through that, you, you know, reduce your levelized cost of energy and make it more competitive to other renewable energies and it, and it you know, is a self-sustaining system. Um, so to answer the question, you know, a lot of technology in the drilling, different methods of it, different ways to have assurances that you're going to get the resource that you expect, different ways to uh, you know, pivot if you happen to encounter something unexpected like closed loop systems. Um, so it's, a, it's a quite an amorphous, uh, I guess, category of technologies within that, but they each have their own application uh, depending on what's encountered on a project level basis. All right, and I want to interject something. Yes, here. please. All right, so, <laughs> so, so my bet is there's a, there's a bunch of people in the audience that are wondering how to get into geothermal from an entrepreneurship perspective or an innovation perspective, and here's some ideas. Some of the hottest stuff coming out uh, in terms of, of startups and geothermal have, have come out of the MIT ecosystem. Um, Quaze is one of them. They're vaporizing rock. It's a super cool next generation drilling technology, but it doesn't have to be that complicated, right? So anything high temperature, high temperature cements, high temperature sensors, high temperature insulated materials, some high temperature sprays, things that are anti-corrosive. I mean, there's all, anything you can think of that's high temperature, we want that. If you're working on a material science thing that is high temperature, let's do it for geothermal, right? So there's, there's so much opportunity for geothermal innovation, in particular for geothermal startups. We need more geothermal startups. So in terms of you know, technologies and things that we need, there's a lot of it. Just pick your place in geothermal. Another really big developing space is, is operations and maintenance of geothermal wells and reservoirs um, that's circulating the fluid, making sure things aren't scaling and, corro and, and corroding as they go. Also use of supercritical CO2 as the working fluid instead of water. That's really cool, but we need to design better turbines for the surface. There's so many problems, right? So like if you think this is a cool space, pick something and do it. Um, because the startups that got started three years ago have raised a couple of hundred million dollars and are in the field drilling wells. And that's how fast you can get into geothermal, raise money, and get in the field if you have a good idea. Okay. Now, I want to. I'm going to ask you a question, but Jamie Coleman, you said 1,200 megawatts per plant. Per unit. That's what the new ones are. I'd say roughly a thousand per unit per reactor. Okay. So current fleet. So we're talking about a geothermal well. How how big is a geothermal well? <laughs> five to seven megawatts in the states for the upcoming projects. Some existing projects, you know, depending on the resource, can be maybe like 20 megawatts per well. I get excited for projects that are 30 megawatts in total, comp comprised of a couple wells. Um, I think the largest geothermal plant in the world is likely in Indonesia, maybe like 350 megawatts. So not really comparative to what nuclear can bring. <laughs> so, so the question there is, we're, we're all on here, we're all, we're all preaching baseload. How, how does, I guess, how does geothermal and why does geothermal matter? If we've got nuclear putting on 1,200 megawatts every plant, 
Well, let's, let's talk about megawatts, right? Because there's megawatts of electricity and megawatts of heat, right? Geothermal is the only renewable source that is a baseload heat supply. And roughly 40 to 50% of all of our carbon emissions globally are from heating and cooling buildings, right? So if you can have a localized domestic resource for heating and cooling, that's a, that's a very valuable thing for countries like Europe, for instance, you know, where all of a sudden you have a, a sudden impact on your energy supply for, for gas and for heating. You know, here's a, here's a domestic safe resource that is green and renewable and could be used over 25% of Europe. Um, I don't think nuclear is really utilized for heating, you know, maybe waste heat recovery in some instances, but that's the primary differentiator. And it also means that you can utilize a lot more resources in unknown geographic areas, right? So I know we were talking about the US, but the Netherlands, for instance, has massive plans for geothermal expansion. And of course, the Netherlands is not associated with like volcanic activity or the ring of fire or things that you might expect, but they're using geothermal resources for greenhouses, huge greenhouse industry. Um, and so this is the opportunity for you know, thinking outside the box behind not just what's my power demand, what's my energy demand? And then what's the current supply chain for it and how can it be replaced with a clean baseload energy supply like geothermal? Can I make a comment? Yeah. You're, you asked how geothermal is relevant and I think that question is really about how do we scale it? And, and the answer that the oil and gas industry guy didn't say, and we're, we're friends by the way, so I can call him that, um, <laughs> is, is the oil and gas industry is the answer to scale for geothermal. Um, and I can say that because I'm a climate activist, right? So, so from, from my view, um, Interspace just published a report called The Future of Geothermal in Texas. And that was a collaboration of six research universities in the IEA and about 100 oil and gas collaborators. And, and it was a, a, a gigantic body of work with a lot of different chapters, but one of the, one of the chapters um, took a look at what geothermal would look like in 2050 if the oil and gas industry drilled geothermal wells at the rate they currently drill for oil and gas, right? So we're drilling the same number of wells for geothermal that we currently drill now for oil and gas globally. And the answer to that was geothermal penetration by 2050 as 77% of global electricity demand and 146% of global heat demand. And that's future demand, right? So we're eliminating energy poverty while, while creating that amount of output. That's how we get to scale with geothermal. It's, it's borrowing the oil and gas industry to start drilling at the scale they drill for oil and gas. And, and, and I'll add to, you know, make, make no mistake is that the oil and gas industry is going to start developing geothermal projects. Like this is, this is happening now and it's new, right? And it takes a little bit of learning for this to happen. Learning could be painful sometimes, but it's coming and it's, it's happening right now. And it's not just, you know, bespoke geothermal development for heat and power, but it's also the utilization of non-productive oil wells for geothermal energy production. Right? A lot of oil wells are hot. They're hot enough that you could utilize the heat from them to generate electricity or utilize the heat directly. There's something between 10 and 30 million orphaned oil and gas wells that exist globally. I mean, even just 1% of that, if it can be converted into a geothermal energy producer, you have a significant reduction in the capex that you need to bring this energy online. And you have an additional reduction of the, the liabilities that you as a you know, operator developer have to plug and abandon your oil wells. And it, it creates something 
you know, green out of something that, that traditionally wasn't green. All right. Well, I think that there's a lot of similarities here, and we've talked, I feel like we've been kind of riding this high right now of like cheerleading and, and getting excited for these industries, but we have talked about some technical challenges and how we're gonna solve those. I do also wanna talk about kind of the, almost the political barrier or the social acceptance and why we're, why we are up here talking about how great this is and, and why we even need to be up here. So, and I think we, in nuclear and geothermal, we have similar problems as far as social acceptance, political regulatory steps. So I just wanna quickly go through that, trying to be mindful of time. First, starting with political and regulatory hurdles. What are some of those major challenges, especially as we talk about scaling up geothermal and the idea of getting to 20 different nuclear power plants in line, ready to go, or putting small modular nuclear power plants all across the country? Well, I can start, or do you wanna start? Go ahead. All right, well, from an international perspective, we have all of these different designs, and if you cite something or approve something in the United States, doesn't mean you can use it in France doesn't mean you can use it in Canada. So there has to be a harmonization of the regulations in some facets because every site will be different. So there is an analysis you have to do per site. But like if you could be able to get a certification for a reactor design that, that could go globally, that actually could spur supply chain uh, readiness. That could actually spur financial um, or, or financing because now they're like, okay, it's been certified. I know we can use this reactor anywhere, except you have to do the whole siting and there's other uh, evaluations you have to do. But that would cut down on a lot of the regulatory burden and uncertainty when you're going to think about deploying a lot of these different types of designs out there. Um, I do know there's efforts uh, within uh, a lot of, especially the United States and Canada, and they're looking at you know, some other international partners looking at harmonizing, making these regulations and you know, certifying these designs together. Um, and they're moving towards this, but they're moving very slowly. Mm. Now, for nuclear, we all know that we do wanna make sure that it's safe for the public, safe for the workers. So I appreciate that they're doing their due diligence, but we do need to make sure that they have the time and space and encourage them to let's play together as a global society so we then we can spur on, you know, how are we going to then find the fuel for all of these? How are we gonna create the supply chain? And then the workforce, how are we gonna do that as well? Like that workforce, um, if we're gonna to put together, I've seen some people say, we're gonna put 160 of these little tiny reactors all over the world. Who's gonna man all of these? Because by the time that happens, you know, everyone in this room, we're gonna be probably 20 plus years older we're gonna look at the, the new generation, and is the new generation excited about nuclear? Are they excited about geothermal? Are they gonna come work in these areas? Um, and how do we do that? I, I just think, you know, the best thing that you can do is vote for the people who are gonna support the things that you want them to support. Um, there are political hurdle, hurdles, there are regulatory hurdles, they're kind of related. Um, be smart about who you put in office and who's representing you 
in your state. Um, and you know, look at those things and do your part. <laughs> the other thing I think is just being an advocate. Before I started working in the nuclear industry, I didn't know anything about the nuclear industry. It's just been living it and, and working in it that um, you know you really understand. There's a lot out there. You can turn on a, a movie or a documentary about nuclear and you know know what the facts are because a lot of times that is not it. So I think it's just educating yourselves and and you know being an advocate for the facts and then you know pushing the people that we're putting in these positions that can actually make a difference. You want to seriously talk about geothermal regulatory barriers? <laughs> no, All right, so y'all don't go it. to sleep. <laughs> All right, you want, you want the one minute summary is you can't really develop a geothermal product, project on federal land unless you want to spend six or eight or 10 years trying to get it permitted. And that's why there's not really geothermal projects on federal land. That's why it's really hard to develop a project here in the United States. And it's not just the US. It's, you know, this, there are regulatory barriers like this elsewhere in the world, and, you know, including also uh, bans on hydraulic fracturing, which does limit the type of geothermal that you can develop in places, right? So there are, depending on where you are in the world, there are significant barriers. I hate politics, and so I just try to go around them because you can't really, um, you can't really count on changing regulatory barriers that are very polarizing. And for geothermal, um, it, it's really about the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, a very important uh, environmental regulation in the country that is causing the permitting complications. Um, and it's very difficult to, to change that because it's a very polarizing topic politically. So, you know, that, that's a nutshell for federal land. Um, my, my take is then we'll just go develop on state land. And that's what, and that's what Interspace is focused on, state and private land, to try to get around the permitting barriers. But what do you have to say about that, Taylor? Oh, boy. I mean, I agree. <laughs> permitting is a nightmare. And, and you know, there's, there's been a number of recent roundtables with the Secretary of Energy, um, Jennifer Granholm, and she opened the most recent one with, don't talk about permitting, I know. It's an issue, right? So like, it's, it's well known. I mean, there's a story, depending on what side of the, the political bench you sit on with, with regards to geothermal that's attractive, you know, for like, you have, a, you have a transference of skills from oil and gas into renewable energy, and then you have your renewable energy. And so there is an attractive story to be told um, that's, that's appealing, but actually, you know, talking about is one thing, seeing action and policies and, and legislator like legislation come down, that's a whole nother animal, you know? And then the funding behind it, geez, it's gonna take years. I'm a big fan of indoctrinating a youth and trying to, you know, trying to educate younger people to that, that there's, I think I heard the term just like a climate anxiety, right? That's, that's like kind of a crippling thing for a lot of people who are in Gen Z. And you're like, yeah, I could feel that. You know, I, I kind of feel it for my kids too. Um, but you can also, look at that as an opportunity for them to say like, you know, I'm not just afraid of what the future is gonna hold, but here's what a potential solution is to, to like ease my anxiety and then also to work. And that maybe will trickle upwards to, you know, their parents, I, I'm not sure. How to even do that, I don't know either. But I, I think to, to what um, they were saying is, you know, getting advocacy out there and targeting the groups that are 
that, that need to be targeted, right? You can't just have one broad message. You have to understand who your audience is and then create a specific message for them that then solves whatever problem you're trying to do, nuclear or geothermal in this case. All right, so we are going to do closing thoughts. You each get one minute. <laughs> but I do want to frame this in the sense of one major thing that we haven't really talked about is NIMBY, not in my backyard. We've talked about climate anxiety. We've talked about Three Mile Island. I don't know if we mentioned Chernobyl yet. We've in, mentioned induced seismicity and earthquakes and fracking. So I want your closing statement to really be an elevator pitch to say why nuclear or why geothermal, why does it need to be one of the integral solutions to baseload power and a net zero society? Whoever wants to start. <laughs> I see you all rolling. Okay, your eyes. so 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 I'll, I'll I'll say like you know I'm probably going to make some enemies here, but wind and solar are not going to do it alone. You know that's it's just not going to happen. There there's there's no way that you can have enough energy storage for these technologies with a capacity factor ranging between 30 and 45 percent to be able to lead to a net zero society, prevent this you know uh, plus two degrees Celsius limit that we have from the from the Paris Climate Accords. You need to have sustainable, reliable baseload energy. And that comes from only two sources if it's gonna be green, and that's geothermal and it's nuclear. And yeah, there's challenges. You know, we've talked about them. We've talked all about them here. But we need to overcome these challenges. They've been overcome uh, by you know, historic precedents. The, the shale industry, like Jamie mentioned, is, is one example of how, how it can happen. You know, small modular reactors that, that are coming online are other examples of how this can happen. And it's going to be hard getting there. It's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to take a lot of advocacy and growing pains. But what choice do we have? I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of in this like really bad situation on a global scale with climate change. There's water scarcity. There's uh, like, you know, storms and, and, and forest fires that are being represented on a scale that, that hasn't been seen in any sort of historic precedence. We got to do it. This is, this is what we have to do. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a quote uh, somebody in my company have said, you know, we aren't brain surgeons, but they can't do their jobs if we don't do our jobs. Um, everybody, it's just math. There's an amount of power that we need, and there's an amount of power that you can create, and there's no way to get from A to Z if you don't have clean baseload energy and to meet all the sustainability goals that everybody's company has and that you know we have there's there's just no other way to to get there it, it has to be a part of the equation oh, yeah I would agree with that I, we're not and not one technology is going to go alone right you're not going to have all nuclear you're not going to have all maybe we'll have all geothermal well, I don't know but like <laughs> right but like I don't think there is one technology that is the answer. We have a toolbox of all of these different technologies, and we're going to need to use all of them for each different situation. Each country is different. Each area of the world is different. So if you take anything off the table, that you're probably going to, to actually disadvantage someone. So if we want to have equity, we want to have sustainability, and we want to have energy security for on a global scale, we really have to open up and be 
really frank with ourselves on how we're going to deploy all of these technologies, how are we gonna overcome all of these challenges in a timely manner. If we keep arguing about this and we just sit here on this stage for 20 years, that's not gonna help anyone. We actually have to go out and do something. And so, um, yeah, vote for the people that you want to, to have that message go forward. But then also like think about and maybe you know talk to your children, talk to your communities about let's think about what's best for our community, and then maybe try to educate ourselves on all the options that are out there, and and then choose the best one for that, for what you need. All right, one minute. So speed and scale. So for me, geothermal is the solution to speed and scale. And when I think about the climate crisis and how little time we have and how much time we've wasted um, hand-wringing about it over the last three decades. And I look around at the world at what assets we have on the table to fix it. One thing that is, a, you know, one really obvious asset that we could be leveraging is the oil and gas industry. Well, how do we do that? Well, they know the sub subsurface. Well, what can they be doing on the subsurface? They should be doing geothermal, right? And when you, when you look at the need for speed and scale, at the speed and scale that we need to solve the crisis in a timely manner, um, you know, we need all hands on deck. And so you know, geothermal is, is, is an obvious outcome there. And if you look at the way we've powered the world for the past 200 years, we've done it with oil and gas, but we've done it largely in the trajectory that geothermal will develop as well, where we were picking up oil and gas off the surface of the ground back in the days of Spindletop. And then we started drilling deeper and they kind of went a little bit offshore and they were doing it on little wooden platforms 10 feet from the, from the shore. And then all of a sudden we're doing deep water and ultra deep water. And that's in 100 years of technology development. Let's just take all of that progress, plop it into geothermal and do it fast, right? So we're, we're picking geothermal off the surface right now. That's in Iceland. Let's do geothermal deep water. And let's do, do, let's do geothermal deep water by 2050, right? That's, that's how we solve climate change. All right, well, thank you all for being on the panel. Thank you everybody for joining us and we're only a little bit behind. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Joe, good job. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.